0: Acts 2 1 reads, When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, assembled, covenanted together. That's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. After the day of Pentecost, the additions and the baptisms in verse 42 says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread. And in prayers and fear came upon every soul, many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, and did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. I believe these verses really encompass what our church covenant is all about. And the church covenant, as said before, in case somebody just was to look at this message or hear this message and not the others, is taken from things taught in the Bible. It is not a man-made thing that we have come up with while men have written it out. It is just like a statement of faith. It is directly from the Bible. And as I've been doing, I'm giving you chapter and verse for everything that's taught in it. So, it is a continuation of just what we read about in Acts when we as individual members implement our duty and responsibility to God, and then to one another by fulfilling the things stated therein. We're down to the third paragraph, and I would remind you that the first paragraph, again, spoke to us, and uh, I think this is just beautiful, the way this is laid out uh, for us. That first paragraph speaks of how we got here. As members of this assembly and how we are covenanted together and why, what brought all that about. And then the second paragraph told us what we are to do when we assemble as a church. What our motive is, what our goals are, what our purpose is, what our objective is, and how those things are to be carried out as the Lord Jesus, the head of the church, instructed the first church. So about church responsibility, the second paragraph. As we come to the third paragraph, now we come to what to do when we're not assembled. So it gets more individualized and more personal as it deals with our individual responsibility. Thus, that's why I gave you copies and replaced the third person, we, with I. Because, as I've said before, stir up your pure mind again today, it only becomes we when I and you do it. Then it's we. There won't be no we if I and you are not fulfilling our responsibility. So that third paragraph reads, We also engage to maintain family and secret devotion, to religiously educate our children, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our deportment, to avoid all tattling, backbiting, and excessive anger, to abstain from the sale and use of intoxicating drinks as a beverage, and to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. A lot of individual responsibility there, as you see. And this is basically what might be called today practical Christian living or duty. That's the things that you see in this paragraph. And again, they are all taught from the New Testament. We hear a whole lot and there is a lot out there in Christianity about practical Christian living and duty, as there should be. But I have always emphasized that without a doctrinal foundation, it's pie in the sky. So much of Christianity and preaching today, and seems like the objective of a lot of churches, is solving everybody's problems. That's not what the church is called to do. The Bible does has the answer for every problem you will come up with. And we go there for it. But practical Christian living or the implementation of obedience and our responsibility must always be based upon a doctrinal foundation. And if it's not, our obedience is not going to amount to much. Our fruit is not going to amount to much. So... You put the cart ahead of the horse if you preach practical Christian living without a doctrinal foundation. And when I say that, I'm talking about who we were, what we were, how we were saved, and what we are now by the grace of God. Then you proceed on with Christian living. That example is in just about every letter the Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament. He begins with a greeting, he goes into the doctrine, and then he applies the practical. You know, uh, this would be like kids who just want to eat the icing, and they don't want the cake. No, the icing goes on after the cake, okay? So the hard work first, and then it makes the other easier. Now, practical Christian living or our obedience to our duty as Christians, is what we're talking about, the real character, not only of individuals, but the character of the church. It is a church covenant. So the character of this church, or the testimony of this church, is only as good as the character and the testimony of its members. This is nothing new. I've preached this here for years, and you know that. That, again, the character of this church and its testimony here in this area or community is only known and seen in the individual members. Most of the people you know, most of the people that I know who know you will probably never attend or be present in this assembly. That's just a fact. We could look at history. How many people do you know? How many lo- How long have you known them? How many of times have they come and visited your church? You know, it's not going to happen. So if we wait for them to come here to see what this church is about, they'll probably never see. Most people want, but as we go out there every week into the world, they see us, and when they see us, they are looking at Philadelphia Baptist Church. Aztec New Mexico so all they know about this church is what they see in you and me so our character our testimony is vitally important because we represent this church and we want to maintain the character that we're called to fulfill the duty we want to be that light and that salt that this church is to be So again, think about this, Jesus' own words concerning His people, His disciples, and His church. And it's in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, I'll just read it, a few verses there. Chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. He says, "...of us individually and His church." Ye are the light of the world. This is after saying in verse 13, You're the salt of the earth. Ye are the light of the world. A city that city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, a Christian and the Lord's true church should be just as distinct in the world as a solitary light in total darkness. I mean, you think about the magnitude of that and the profoundness of that. The world spiritually is darkness. The people of the world are darkness. Sinners are darkness. That was our former home, was it not? But God, by His light, has called us out of darkness. We are now the children of light. And if you've ever lived in the South and seen little fireflies on a summer night, that's about what we are. We are those little lights, supernatural by grace, that God sends out into the world through his church to be a light to them. So we are that testimony. We are that salt preserving quality. Very unique. Very peculiar. Very distinct for a very distinct purpose. So as the song says you know how does your light shine? You know we are to cultivate that light. And now we live in a day of technology where all you got to do is flip a switch to get a light, right? But think about the old lamps like in the temple and what have you. I mean, they, they were like wick oil lamps, you know? And that's the way they burned. The wick had to be maintained, you know? And the soot had to be got out and oil had to be added. There's a maintenance of that. And so, again, we are distinct from the world. We are that light in the world. And that light is to be a testimony of Him who saved us and the church He placed us in. All right, let's look at these things. It begins with, we also engage. We've already pledged in the second paragraph some things within the church. Now we're pledging to God and each other outside of the church so a pledge is a commitment i like the word commitment it's getting to be more and more rare and the action of it is even more than that but nevertheless it is a biblical term that we deal with all the time commitment all right so we are committed to and the first thing says to maintain family and secret devotion now we're here today assembled as a church and when we're here we are seeking to worship we are seeking to honor our God praise our God and so forth well that's not supposed to stop when we leave here we just cease doing it as a church when we're not assembled but we do that on a daily basis individually and in our families. We should. The Bible teaches that. So this is the concept behind maintaining family and secret devotion. What is devotion? You know, sometimes we talk about, well, reading our daily devotion. And we're talking about a scripture reading, and reading the scripture and thinking about God is an honoring of God. God is the object of our worship, but really anything that is quote-unquote religiously recognized or honored is a devotion. Somebody that bows down to a rock or a totem pole or anything in that manner, well that is a devotion. They are honoring some type or form of deity. The word shows up familiarly in Paul's Uh, Sermon on Mars Hill in Acts 17. Verse 23, he says, I passed by, beheld your devotions. I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. And as I've told you many times from what I have read, It is believed, and archaeology has discovered, and so forth, that when Paul came to Athens, these devotions amounted to probably close to 200 monuments, statues, or recognized things of different gods. Greek mythology. They had a god for everything, okay? So devotions here are those memorials or recognition of all of these deities or gods. So thus religiously honored or recognized. So that's what a devotion or devotions in that sense are. So to maintain a family devotion is to continue what we do here at church when we are in the capacity of family or in privacy. And note the word it says, maintain. Again, can you maintain anything that doesn't exist? No. Maintaining or maintenance is done on something that is already in existence and functioning, right? I mean, our cars do not maintain themselves, do they? I wish they did, because maintenance can be very expensive. Our bodies do not naturally maintain themselves. They do an excellent job in spite of our abuse of them, but even they need attention, don't they? So again, maintain our maintenance conveys to us that again it is like that lamp. You have to work at it. You have to cultivate it. You have to add the oil, you have to trim the wick, so forth and so on, I'm maintaining a cultivation of Christian character in that respect. And uh, literally here again, the whole idea is uh, keeping, you know, or holding in that respect, preserving so again, we have the Holy Spirit within us. Uh, we are to cultivate our relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. It is a maintenance process. We, if you neglect your car, guess what? It's sooner or later. You're only going to neglect it so long, and it's going to break down. If we neglect ourselves in our devotions, same way. There'll be a breakdown. Down the road, it says family devotions and secret devotions, and those are different. But families, Christian families, should have Christian devotions. And of course, the responsibility falls on the head of the family, which is the man. All right? family devotions the father is the head of the family first corinthians chapter 11 makes this clear god is the head of christ christ is the head of man Man man's the head of the woman and they're over the children all right so the spiritual head of the family is the man it is his duty and responsibility to see that there are family devotions in the family now very sadly today we've come to the point where There aren't a lot of devotions because there's not a lot of family, even in Christian circles. But again, the devil, the enemy knows this. And as you know, I'm not going into detail, there has been an attack on the family and the destruction and deterioration of the family for a long time in this country. And we're watching it disintegrate, you know. We're, We're seeing too many single parent, quote unquote, families. That's not a family. That's not a family. Children do not need to be deprived of either mothers or fathers. God instituted it. It works when you have both. Because both supply in conjunction one with another everything that the child needs when it's done right. Okay? So we're seeing that today. And this is very discouraging as we see this happening. Uh not only is the church built upon the family in a sense, when I say that, don't take it that it's not built on Christ, it is, but I'm talking about the functioning and the dependence and the longevity of the church is based on the family unit. What's going on in the family is going to manifest what's going on in the church. The strength of the families in the church is going to be the strength of the church in that. So all of these things that we're talking about today is what's going to make or break the church, okay? Okay. And again, sadly, a lot of Christian families are in disarray because things have been neglected or negligent or not being done in the proper manner. So, if uh, there is to be family devotion, how is this done? What is that devotion? What is the family to do? What is the father to lead in, in the home? Well, a couple of things. Number one, the Word of God. When we come here, we read, teach, and preach the Word of God, right? I mean, and we're worshiping God when we do that. Well, that's exactly what we're to do in the home. That doesn't cease when we go out the door Sunday morning or Sunday night. Okay? That's to carry on in the home. So you can't have a devotion without the Word of God because our devotion to God is through and by the Word of God as well as through the Holy Spirit. So it is reading, instructing from the Word of God. All right? As well as... Prayer. Again, that's something that can be done. Fathers should lead families in prayer, lead their wives in prayer if there's no more children or what have you. But again, the man is to be the leader in the spiritual devotions of the home. Then it says secret devotions. Now this comes down, we break down the family into the individual parts. We all have an individual relationship with our Lord and Savior through the power of the Holy Spirit. So not only is it to be in a family way, but it is also to be in a private way. The husband, the wife, the children. This is what Jesus talked about about in the Sermon on the Mount when he talked about when you pray, you know, you go into your closet and pray, don't stay in the street corner so forth. It is a private thing. And of course the beauty of that is since it's spiritual, you can do that anywhere. You, you, you can be on an assembly line and, and do this, you know. I mean, if you're not having to concentrate real hard on something, uh, you can do it on the break time, you can do it whatever, you know, because we worship God in spirit and in truth. So secret devotion means reading on your own, praying on your own, acknowledging God in your mind as you go about your daily, weekly activities. The second thing falls on the heels of this, to religiously educate our children. And, uh, of course, most families and churches have children and have that responsibility to do that very thing. I don't really like the word religiously because of what it means today. It is so uh, not what it used to mean. It used to be a more sacred word, and it's not today today. But I want to point out the distinction here by using religiously educate is to distinguish from secular education, okay? That, again, we want our children to be educated not just in the secular thing, the math, sciences, and histories, and things like this, but no religious things, which means literally biblical things so we could substitute there if we wanted to and be dead on what we're talking about we want them to be biblically educated and this again is parents responsibility the primary duty of every parent who has children is the education of those children it is not somebody else but that has changed has it not because The convenience of the day and the modernism of the day and the feminism of the day is send your kids off somewhere and let somebody else educate them and take care of them while you go about doing whatever you want to do. So again, the breakdown of the family, and we're reaping what's being sowed in that capacity. But it is the duty of Christian people, families, mothers, fathers, fathers, to religiously or biblically educate their children. And in fact, just think about this. You know, just like flush toilets, they haven't always been around. Well, guess what? Secular schools haven't always been around. I mean, theres it's a privilege to be able to have those things, but you better be careful with them, of course, in this day and time. But again used to in so many families, so many continents, so many places in human history, all the education fell upon the parents. There wasn't nobody or nowhere to send them. And people that, if there were, most families, a lot of people, didn't have money to do such a thing. So it has always been the duty of parents to religiously or biblically educate their children. In fact... As we look back, and America's got a beautiful history on this. As you look at the education of children in America as this country was founded and progressed on, their secular education came from their biblical education, as it should. And as I've mentioned to you before, and I'll be quick here, I've got that old Noah Webster dictionary, and I love that thing. Uh, 1828 was the date on it. And again, when it gives a definition of a word, it'll quote something from the Bible where that word is used. You know, the little blue-black spellers, blue-back speller books that were here in the foundation of this country and the thing. I mean, the secular education was taken right out of the Bible. I mean, we didn't have people printing school books. You got it? I mean, there's just so many things we have today that people take for granted, they haven't always been here. Who you think was printing school books in 1776 or 1800? You know, I mean, again, the dictionary was 1828, Noah Webster. You got it? I mean, we're privileged to have all this stuff we got today, but people haven't always had it. In Deuteronomy, it's very plain there, the responsibility set forth as God told Israel, Chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, verse 6, These words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Parental duty, responsibility. And shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou layest down, and when thou risest up. Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand. They shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. Thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and upon thy gates. Parental responsibility. And again, it's not just saying, okay, from 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock, we're going to teach the Bible. And the rest of the time, we're, not, we're going to put it back on. No. This was continual. This was habitual, as prayer should be. You don't have to teach it every moment of every day. Nobody can do that and live and sustain family life. But you can reference it continually. And of course, praying at meals and things like that. I mean... Uh, You know, what a a great compliment. Remember what God said about Abraham? Uh, I love this. Exodus 18 and verse... mm, 19 is... Not Exodus, it's Genesis. Abraham's in Genesis, not Exodus. My apologies. 18 and 19 of Genesis, and this is when, uh, right before uh, the Lord destroyed... Sodom and Gomorrah and he says this of Abraham verse 19 for I know him that he will command his children and his household after him and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him mainly blessings what a what a compliment you know what a compliment for a mother a father to raise up godly children I mean wow what a blessing uh there's a statement I can't remember. I heard it just recently about how that, you know, a nation is built upon the mothers of the of the home and stuff like that. And truly, that there are proofs of that very thing, and many of them are biblical. Uh, Ephesians 6 and 4 in the New Testament, very familiar, I'm sure, Scripture when I read it. Uh, you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. What are we seeing today? With children, the failure of exactly what I'm talking about. And when these things were done, the world, society, and the culture, wherever it was done, was a better place. So, this is, again, the primary duty of parents. Let me say, it is not the duty of the church to raise church members' children. It is not the duty of Sunday school. Now, we've lived in a generation, I have, you have, where, again, parents would put their kids on a bus and send them to the church, and, you know, they go to Sunday school. Well, that's a well and good thing, but that's passing the buck. The parents need to be there. The parents ought to be driving them there. The parents ought to be taking them there, not shipping them off. The parents should be leading by example, and the parents should be teaching at home, not sending them to somebody else who they don't even know or may not know and certainly don't know because they're not there what's being taught. But that's where we're at. It is not the public school's responsibility to teach your children. All right? Not primarily. That's a fill-in. Okay? But let me put it to you like this, too. If Somebody's going to teach I mean, they're little sponges. If you're, not, if you're not giving it to them to soak it up, guess what? They're going to soak it up somewhere else, and we're seeing that. We're seeing what the culture is doing in raising children today, right? So again, the society and culture and our times have moved away from this, but you can't beat the blessings of what this procures. Well, what about how, how to do it? Well, I don't feel like a teacher. I, I'm not schooled in the Bible. I don't know, well, get schooled. <laughs> You're a parent. It's your responsibility to know something. If you know how to teach them math, you can read the Bible and teach them that, you know? And the best ways, one of the best ways, I'm a big fan of catechisms. I mean, they've been used for centuries down through the ages. And catechisms are just little short, basic, simple questions and answers. But they are so fundamental. You can start it as soon as a kid can start learning. You know, who is God? Uh, You know, I mean, we've got them here. Spurgeon had them. I mean, they had the shorter catechisms with the little blueback speller and stuff here. That's what children were educated with, the foundation of this country. And wow, you know what? Things turned out pretty well when people were being educating and educating their children in that. You don't have to have a degree. You don't have to be a scholar. And as I've often said, if you know what's this in this book rather than a science book or a math book, you're way ahead. What's in here is more important than science and math. In fact, I'll say this. This is the foundation for every other book, math, science, or history in that regard. So catechisms are an excellent way to do that. The next thing is to seek the salvation of kindred and acquaintances. So kindred is this family again. And I'm going to implement this into what we just finished with, with catechisms and the teaching of children, because what's the whole idea of teaching children? So then quote Bible verses? No. That they might be saved. We want to see souls saved. We want to, The objective of parents is to see those children Saved, converted, born again, a vessel in the service of the Lord. What a great blessing it is to have a child that's serving the Lord. I mean, you know, people brag on their children. People brag on their grandchildren. Well, that's all right. But what's the greatest brag or the greatest fact that you could say? That they're following the Lord. That the Lord saved them and they're being obedient in the service and work of the Lord. There is no greater pride for a parent to have in a child than that. That's it. Brenda and I were talking this week. Again, it goes back to that fundamental statement. There's only one life. it soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So in teaching the Bible to your children, you're planting seeds that have eternal effects as well as present blessings. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. This is the goal and should be the goal and objective of every parent who has children and does this. That from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So the objective of teaching children anything is with the goal that they might be saved. And they're not going to be saved apart from the gospel. And the gospel's found in one place, the Holy Bible. Teach the Bible. So, it should be the natural desire of every Christian, every church member, and every true church to what? See or seek the salvation of other people. Salvation and grace and the love of God is not something that we want to accumulate and harbor and hold and hide away to ourselves, is it? No. Grace is sharing. Grace is giving. And as you have received, so you want to give. You recognize God gave freely to you. You want to give to others. We want to see other people enjoy what we have. We wish every human being could taste the grace of God, would be born again, could have the peace and joy and comfort and presence of the Holy Spirit that we have. That's the best as it gets. You give a person a million dollars, you hadn't given them nothing. If you hadn't given them something of the Bible or the gospel, in that regard, the greatest gift we can give is the gospel. So, how do we seek the salvation of the other people? family or well we teach the children and others may be a family or acquaintance we talk the gospel if opportunity allows and we walk the gospel we do not talk what we do not walk and if we talk it we must walk it and then the other thing we can do is pray for them. our talk should be based upon the simple gospel And our walk should show what a difference the grace of God has made in our lives. It doesn't matter if other people understand it or not. Most won't. But they should see that there is something different in you who have been born again and saved by the grace of God than those who have not. How distinct is a goat from a sheep and a sheep from a goat? They have similarities, but they're pretty distinct. So should we be. Now, again, you can't give what you don't have. So this goes back to what we talked about before, about growing in the knowledge. If you have the knowledge, you can share that knowledge with others. But bottom line is, if God has saved you, you've got something you can share. Alright? That thief on the cross wasn't there very long, and he wasn't saved very long, but he had something to share with his buddy, the other thief, didn't he? I mean, it was short, it was brief, but he had something to share. What did he say? you remember that? He said, this, guy, this man is innocent, but we are justly condemned. I mean, wow! What a gospel message in a few words. So no matter where you're at in your Christianity or in your salvation... If God has saved you, He has deposited some grace in you, and He has your spirit and tell your story, if nothing else. That you are what you are by the grace of God. This is what I was, this is what He did, and this is what I am. And this is what one day I'll be and where I'll go. You've got something. You may have more than you think. You may surprise yourself. In fact, the Holy Spirit may surprise you. We pray He does. The next thing is to walk circumspectly in the world. That's a word that's kind of foreign to us. However, it is a biblical word. We can go back to Exodus and pick up this word and get an idea again of what it means and a definition for it. And do remember, as Bible students, we get our definitions from the Bible, not from, again, Webster or the culture primary source, but from the Bible. Exodus 23, 13 says... And in all things that I have said unto you, that would be God or Moses or through Moses, whatever, all things that I have said unto you, be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods, neither let it be heard out of thy mouth. Let it be circumspect. That word simply means in the Hebrew to keep it. Or, I like this, to be a keeper of it. Okay, so God gave those things to them. And to be circumspect, again, means to keep them. Keep them in mind, keep them in memory, apply them in life, be obedient unto them. We see the word in the New Testament. Paul uses it in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15. And there we read, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. And the New Testament Greek word means exactly, accurately, or diligently. Or all of those. That's the synonyms for So think about it. See then that you walk accurately, exactly, diligently, not as fools. Now, we got a good definition there because how would a fool do anything? Not diligently, not accurately, not exactly, just casually, freelance, whatever you feel like, impulsively, you know, without thought, without whatever, right? (coughs) So that is opposite. The wise, again, refers to the person walking circumspectly who, again, exactly, diligently, accurately. Well, when we're talking about exact, or accurate, we're talking about something like math, numbers, or measurements, aren't we? If it's going to be exact or accurate. So how do we walk exact or accurate? Well, there has to be some standard or else we won't know if it's exact, right? We won't know that 16 ounces is a pound or we don't know this or that, right? Well, the standard is obviously what? God's Word. We walk circumspectly exactly and as accurately as we can according to the do's and the don'ts of this book. That's it. So if you are being obedient to the things we're talking about and the things that are in the New Testament about how Christians ought to live, what we ought to do, what we ought not to do, then you are living circumspectly, accurately, diligently, Exactly, not footloose and fancy-free according to whatever you feel. the Bible is the standard, not what people come up with all right uh, let me add a little bit to that and I like some things that Webster adds to this too. Uh, Webster says walking circumspectly is cautiously and watchful every way now when we if we take a kid out and we're going to cross the street, what do we tell him? You look both ways. I mean, you want to, you know, if you just walk up to a street and don't even look and go across, I mean, yeah, you're a fool. You're being foolish. You might get run over. You might get killed. In that, That's not walking circumspectly. That's walking foolishly, very foolishly. And, you know, we have places you walk, and we also have the little buttons you push that tells you when to walk. So if you are crossing the street circumspectly, you're walking where you're to walk and you're walking when the sign comes on and says you are to walk, okay? That's the best example I know. That's what we're to do with God's Word. Just like He lays it out. No more. No, less. well, I think I'll walk over here. No, you don't. No. We want to walk where He walked. We want to walk after the Lord. Well, what's this all about, working the But Just read the Sermon on the Mount. I don't have time to read it for you today. But Jesus laid it all out there in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't He? I mean, the circumspect walk of every believer is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. There's plenty of do's and don'ts right there for everybody. Finally, just in our dealings. This is very simple. What does it mean to be just in your dealings? Well, that's nothing but a definition for honesty. Honesty. Now, of all people on the planet, Christians ought to be the most honest people there are. Okay? Okay? I mean, we don't expect the world to be honest. We don't expect people of the world to be honest. If you do, you're in for it. Okay? People don't tell the truth. People don't treat you honestly. People will shyster you. People will cheat you. People will take advantage of you. That's human nature. But God's people should be distinctly honest both in word and in deed. This again shows up in the New Testament. We can go to chapter and verses for this. In Romans chapter 13, verse 13, we read Paul saying, Let us, and again, here's the word, walk. Walk circumspectly, walk honestly as in the day, not in riding drunkenness, not in chambering wantonness, not in strife and entering, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ... Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust of thereof. Honestly, righteously, justly, according to the biblical standard. Another verse, uh, maybe one that'll mean more to you. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse twelve. Um, let's read eleven too. Eleven's going to come up later on in the church covenant study. That you study to be quiet, to do your own business, to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that you may walk honestly toward them that are without that you may have lack of nothing so just in our dealings is honest private dealings public dealings tell the truth keep your word do as you say that's pretty much what it amounts to okay and this carries right over into faithful in our engagements here's the word engagement coming from engage again again what is an engagement what is a gauge it is a pledge It is a commitment. If a man and woman are engaged, what are they doing? They've committed to marry each other. All right? In that respect. So it is literally faithful in our engagements, is following through with what we've said we will do or committed to do. Literally. That is very rare today. And it is getting rarer all the time. People tell you stuff, and they're not even in the ballpark of doing it. It should not be so with us. People should notice that you're different, that you keep your word. You show up on time. I've I've never been surprised in my life at how people... They feel like if they show up within 30 minutes of starting time, everything's okay. You know, it's no big deal. Man, I grew up where you got scolded or you got docked, or you eventually got fired if you wasn't there on time. You got, you know, you, you may, we not, we may not have punched the clock, but, <laughs> you know, if you wasn't there, you wasn't going to get paid for it. And Now people just show up like when they feel like it. And, and, you know, like, well, I couldn't this, or I couldn't... I mean, it's ridiculous. Responsibility and accountability is just just about flushed down the toilet. I, I hate to put it that way, but it is pathetic at what people will tell you, promise you, and have no inclination of fulfilling Faithful in your engagements. God's people should be different. In fact, lest I forget it, we have a little printout back here. If you don't have one, I encourage you to get one. If you've lost yours or you had not read it in a while, read it again. It says others may, you cannot. This is what we're committed to. Other people can do that. That don't allow us to do that. We serve the Most High God. We're supposed to do what we're going to say. Don't let your mouth overload your actions. That's Bible, by the way. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I'll read it to you and we'll wrap this up. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. When thou vowest to vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he hath no pleasure in fools, pay that which thou hast vowed. Ananias and Sapphira found that out the hard way. Right? Right? Acts 5, that's what that's talking about. Better it is that thou shouldest not vow than thou shouldest vow and not pay. Suffer not, and here it is. This really hits us in the quick. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Neither say thou before the angel it was an error, wherefore God should be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thy hands. Okay, so our mouths can overload us. Oh yeah, I'll be there. Blah, 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 and No intention. Or I'll call you back. Or you know. And what's even worse? Those are casual things. But again, those are important things. Be a person of your word. Be a person of integrity. Be a person of honesty. Be somebody that when somebody would think of you, they think, well, you know, if, if they say they're going to do it, that per- they're going to do it. You know, whatever. If they commit to it, they'll follow through on it. That should be the character of God's people. And certainly not just in private dealings, but in business dealings. You know, when you take out a loan, You know, you're making a vow. You're pledging. You're making a commitment. You're telling somebody, yeah, I'm going to pay you for that car. Or I'm going to pay you for that bill of groceries or whatever. And, uh, you know, you put it on the credit card or you sign a contract, right? All right. Christians shouldn't be late on their bills. Of all people, Christians should be the people at the top of the list. Have integrity in their business dealings. That people know they'll get their money if they give money to a Christian of such and such a church. We should have that type of character and reputation. A cream of the crop when it comes to business dealings. We should. Why not? Are we not people of integrity? Is our Lord not us to integrity and Righteousness. Nobody should be shutting off your electricity or your bills or or you should not be facing foreclosure. I'm not saying it can't happen. Don't let it be your negligence, choices, bad decisions, mismanagement that gets you there. And if you put your nose to the grindstone to do the things we're talking about here and putting the Lord first, you won't show up there. The Lord promises to take care of you. Serve Him and see Don't default. And it's a disgrace, and I'll say it, and I've told people not to do it, and they did it anyway. Bankruptcy should not be named among Christian people. Defaulting should not be named among Christian people. What a shameful disgrace to our Lord. To claim to be spiritual, to claim to be followers of Christ, and be negligent in our vows, contracts, pledges, commitments, and business dealings. God help us not to overload ourselves in that capacity. Maybe have wisdom. All right, we're stopping there for today. I just say one thing in closing here. I hope you noted that everything we covered today is like everything we've covered to this point. There is biblical chapter and verse for it. And as I said when I started this, if there was not, we'd take this off the wall and throw it away. But this is the Bible up here. And it's just a reminder for us. of what we have committed to the Lord to and to one another. And we close with a thought again. The character and testimony of the church we're a member of is no greater than our own individual testimony and character that people see when we're outside of church in the world. May God help us and enable us to strengthen us to be that light that shines more and more brightly until the perfect day of his appearing.